0: I don't care how good you think that trip to the car wash was. If you do drugs, you get punished, okay? I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are. I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do okay? Hello, and welcome back to Origin Story a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Paneris, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collect comics. I have two comics for all of you today, both of which came out on May nineteenth, 1987, both of which are published by Marvel Comics, but both of which are pretty different from one another. The Transformers, number 31, and The Punisher, number 2. And since I've got two books, I won't be going all onion on my belt on you, so you get a little bit of a reprieve from that. I'm going to tackle the Transformers number 31, which has a price of a dollar and a cover by Bob Budiansky that features Ratbat picking up Buster Witwicky, the original Autobot ally, while a girl clings to Buster's waist and he prepares to hit the Decepticon with a crowbar. They're inside a car wash and the captain on the cover says, it's wet, it's wild, it's the car wash of doom! And much like most of the covers we've seen for the Transformers so far, it does its job pretty well. It's eye-catching and it reflects something that's happening inside the issue. Personally, I miss covers like this because too many current covers tend to be just pinups that don't have much of a connection to the story inside. Although, to be fair, that has, to, that has been going on for quite a long time in the comics industry. I distinctly remember a period in 1991 or 1992 where Detective Comics had a string of covers by Michael Golden and Matt Wagner that, while they were gorgeous, didn't really reflect what was going on inside the issue. Anyway, the title of our story, which is written in Indiana Jones font, is Buster Witwicky and the Car Wash of Doom. Our creative team is Bob Budiansky, writer Don Perlin, breakdowns Jim Fern, finishes Rick Parker, letterer Nell Yamtov, colorist Don, Daly, editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. We open on an oil tanker somewhere in the Caribbean Sea. The Decepticons are attacking it and capture it for its oil. Several hours later, Shockwave and Ratbat arrive, as Ratbat is now on Earth basically to do a performance review of the Decepticons' activities. Shockwave insists that the energy they are consuming on a raid like this is worth it because of what they'll get in oil. However, when Ratbat bites into one of the ship's pipes, he discovers that the raid had occurred after the oil tanker had dropped off its payload. He's not happy, but he says he has a plan in place that will help with their energy problem. In Portland, Oregon, Buster Witwicky helps out at his father's gas station and car wash, a wash and roll car wash. His friend Jessie comes by on her bike and asks him if he wants to go hang out with her at the Dairy King for an ice cream soda. Buster's dad asks him to help out a customer, and he and Jessie part ways with the promise that she'll return later. At BlackRock headquarters, G.B. BlackRock holds a press conference where he presents the latest model of the wash and roll. But after the press leaves, it's revealed that he's being controlled by a small tape cassette that he has in his pocket, and that cassette is Ratbat. Meanwhile, that night at the Whitwickie's wash and roll, Jessie shows up to get her car washed and tells Buster to get into her car and do the wash and roll with her. He's a little reluctant, after all, he's been working there all day, but he gets in and she apologizes for it, because she realizes that, well, I just asked you to go to your job. Then she decides to make it up to him, and while the rock music plays and disco lights go off, Jesse starts making out with Buster in the front seat of the car, but at one point she opens her eyes and, after seeing the lights, winds up in a trance-like state. She tells Buster she must go and takes off. He follows her, and it seems that she's going to a Blackrock oil facility. At one point, he flashes its lights at her, and this seems to get her out of the trance. But before Buster can figure out what's going on, he's attacked by the Decepticon named Laserbeak. However, that attack is not to hurt him, but to get Buster's pickup back in line so that he does what he's supposed to do. He discovers that he is supposed to empty most of the gas tank into a storage tank. As he leaves the facility, he sees a line of cars that stretches beyond its gates, including his father's, and instead of contacting the Autobots, they decide to see what's up. G.B. Blackrock addresses all the people at the facility and explains that he was put under mind control by the Decepticon named Astrotrain, and given the prototype for the wash and roll, and then began reproducing it so that all the people in attendance would become franchisees. The lights in the wash and roll are there to hypnotize people into driving to the storage facility and emptying most of their gas tanks so that the Decepticons can take the fuel for themselves. In the past, the wash and roll lights only worked for a limited amount of time, but the newest model of the building can keep people under the control of the Decepticons forever. Buster tells Jesse to go and get help and then intervenes. He's surrounded by mind control humans as well as Decepticons and realizes that the only way out is through the car wash. As he drives through, Ratbat attacks his truck. Buster starts heading through the car wash on foot with Ratbat chasing him and then comes across the mind control light show. Ratbat grabs him, he tries to fight the control of the lights, kicks a pipe into Ratbat's face, and then finds a tire iron, which he is going to use to fight Ratbat until Jessie comes screaming through the car wash in her car and hits the Decepticon. Buster hops off the roof of Jesse's car and they head out of the wash and roll. Jesse tells him to get in so that he can get out of there, but Buster says that he needs to help his father. Blackrock sees the two of them and orders the crowd to kill them. The crowd goes to attack and Buster climbs onto the roof of the wash and roll, and having remembered that flashing his lights helped get Jesse out of her trance, throws throws his tire iron into the car wash's sign. The sparks and lights snap everyone out of it, and they turn on the Decepticons. Ratback and Laserbeak flee, and soon after, the humans stand around, and Blackrock and Buster explain what happened. Blackrock says that he's going to dismantle all of the car washes and refund the purchase costs to the franchisees, as well as use the profits from the stolen gasoline to help the poor. Buster's dad says he's proud of him, and then Buster and Jesse kiss. Okay, so while this particular story does have its roots in the ongoing subplot involving Ratbat auditing the Decepticons, it's really a one-and-done story. Furthermore, it's a one-and-done story that doesn't feature a single Autobot. Our hero instead is Buster Whitwicky, the kid whose involvement with Our Heroes goes all the way back to issue number one of the series, as does his father Spike. In fact, along with Optimus Prime, they're on the cover of that very first issue. Blackrock is the only holdover from previous issues, although I don't remember him getting tagged last issue, but I read that quite a while ago and didn't feel like going back, so I'm just going to take the writer's and editor's word for it. The Decepticon's plan is one of those that makes sense, even though it's also a little bit ridiculous. The idea that they could put per- people under permanent mind control like that and others wouldn't catch on is a little far-fetched, but then again, this is one of those plans that's doomed to fail anyway, especially since it relies on the mind control of a particular human, who's GB Blackrock, come to fruition, and once the hold that is on his mind is broken, well the plan falls apart right away. I like the fact that Buster is the hero of the story for a few reasons. First, the Autobots are in a bit of disarray at this point. Goldbug and Blaster are still our hard-traveling heroes, but we have been following them for quite a bit, so it was nice to get a change of a protagonist for once. Grimlock's your leader of your Autobots, and not a character I honestly ever really liked, so I'm glad that we didn't have to see him other than his picture being in the issue box on the cover. Plus... What Budiansky does for us is expand the narrative beyond the Autobot Decepticon conflict into the larger population as a whole. I like when a comic like this does that because there are too many times where comics seem to pl- take place in such isolation that you never really see much of an impact on the character's activities on the general population. Plus, Budiansky is not taking this too seriously. He's certainly taking his job seriously here and has written a well-crafted story, but he's not so serious about it that there's no fun in it. The title of the story and the way it is written to look, like the main title of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, suggests something that is lighthearted in places but also has action, and that's what we get. Buster stumbles across the plan while making out with his girlfriend, as teenagers do, and then does the smart thing of sneaking around to figure it out to figure out what is happening before he does something about it. I like how he and Jesse aren't stupid and both of them manage to solve this problem by not using some secret weapon or some secret piece of technology, but they simply outwit and then outlast the Decepticons and their plan. Perlin and Jim Fern do a solid job in the artwork and they keep the art as consistent as it had been when I started reading and reviewing the series with issue twenty seven. Transformers, as I've said before, has a tendency to want to be a disposable comic book because it was the type of book that would grab that a kid would grab off of a spinner rack, a newsstand, or out of one of those three packs you got at TSS, read it, and then chuck it into a drawer or somewhere until it got damaged or thrown away. I don't think that makes these comics any more valuable or rare or any less valuable than, say, the average X-Men issue of this era, but these comics are still of the attitude that might comics of my parents' era were, and I can kind of appreciate that on some level. I can also appreciate the fact that Budiansky is keeping this book going at a time when the toy line, while still around and still selling, had already peaked. Yes, I'm pretty sure there are plenty of Transformers fans out there who can tell me about the toys, how the toys never really went away, and how it's been enduring fandom for 30 years, and they're correct, but I can certainly reply by saying that Well, the time 1987 rolled around, other toys had taken up kid mind space, and they were a higher priority. In fact, I'm pretty sure the television cartoon was done, or was close to being done by this point. But here, Budiansky is treating this as an ongoing story, as opposed to a bunch of toys on a comics page, and I think that is definitely one of the reasons this series lasted as long as it did. I mean, I'll hop off with issue 34, so I only have a few more issues left, but... The series went all the way to issue 80, and that means that the Transformers ran for the better part of four more years. The only other Hasbro property from the 80s that Marvel published that lasted longer was G.I. Joe. So you can track down a copy of this issue on the cheap or in a trade or, di- or digitally, and I have it from the uh, IDW Transformers Classics or Classic Transformers trade that I got off of Comixology. And go ahead. In fact, I would pick up uh, I would pick up any of those trades because you're in for a treat it was really fun and i'm looking forward to seeing what the other issues hold but i'm going to take a quick break right now when i get back i'll have issue number two of the punisher my name is grundy born on a monday the following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to <laughs> mine or am I good where I'm at? Oh, well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to <laughs> mine, you have to do it. You might want to <laughs> only if you do have it set to automatically because <laughs> you don't want it to automatically because <laughs> the <laughs> thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that, t- <laughs> it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough so it's better to just set it up oh, okay it, it really doesn't work well so i checked right. uh i checked my uh oh mm-hmm. my pre- it definitely built mm-hmm. built me for the hotel for all three of us join back to the bins every week for goodness Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers and i'm back Issue number two of The Punisher was a $0.75 book as opposed to a dollar, and I wonder if that's because it was a brand new title and Marvel wanted to encourage people to pick it up. Anyway, the cover is by Klaus Janssen and shows our titular character in black, white, and yellow firing an Uzi while holding another gun and smiling. It's implied that he's in the jungle and certainly does happen in the story, but... What makes this cover stand out to me is that it's not in full color, and the way that Jansen draws what was the motion of the oozy fire starting near Frank's left side and going to his right using just yellow bursts with a magenta outline, it looks unlike any of the covers of the comics I had this month, as well as unlike the covers of the four issues of the series that I own. Plus, Frank's kind of smiling, and that cracks me up a little bit. Anyway, our story is called Bolivia. The credits are as follows. Mike Barron, writer, Klaus Janssen, art and color, Ken Brusniak, letters, Carl Potts, editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. I was having a picnic with my wife and kids in Central Park, the opening narration box goes. The kids wandered off. They stumbled into a mob wipeout. The mob came after us. Only I survived. Central Park in broad daylight. That was years ago. Since then, I have devoted my skills to destroying organized crime. My skills are considerable. I'm in a Jet over the Pacific. An old Marine acquaintance, Lieutenant Curtis Hoyle, is flying me to meet the General, mastermind of an international coke ring. I wiped out their Manhattan connection to prove my sincerity in assuming his position. Crooks are funny that way. They bought it. On the jet, Frank and Hoyle chat with Frank, bringing up how Hoyle's name is on the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. Hoyle gives a non-answer about a foul-up and then asks Frank why he's suddenly in the criminal enterprise. He asks if it has anything to do with errors from last issue. Frank lies and plays dumb and then says that if he had to do it over again, he would have sold drugs like they did back in the war. They landed the General's compound, which is some pretty serious armament and aircraft. Frank is patted down and then is introduced to General Bukhtir Van Tran, formerly of the South Vietnamese army. Frank recognizes him because he was notably the only South Vietnamese general to actually fly combat missions. He'd heard that the general had been killed in 1973, and that of course was a cover story. The general then wants to know about Frank, especially since he's never really met him before. He openly wonders if Frank is CIA. Frank says that if the general kills him, then he has no distributor in New York, and the general says that he understands that, and that's why he's arranged a little test. They head out to the veranda of this compound where the general has Senor Valencia, a Bolivian drug enforcement agent, tied to a chair. He gives Frank a gun with one bullet in it and tells him to execute him. Frank holds the gun to Valencia's head and then shoots the general's goon that is standing behind him. He grabs a knife from the dead goon, cuts Valencia free, picks up the goon's Kalashnikov, but it jams, and he and Valencia then have to make a run for it. They commandeer a jeep and head into the jungle. Frank explains that he works for no government agency, he's strictly freelance. Furthermore, he's there to destroy the general and the compound. Valencia agrees to work with him and says that that they need to get out of the jungle. Frank says no, the jungle is their friend. Their first stop is the armory. They take out the guards and Frank uses his diamond-tipped manicure, which I'm guessing he got from a salon on Long Island because those women don't play, to open some crates. Frank grabs some body armor, paints his signature white Punisher skull on the front, and then he arms himself up. He stashes some weapons in the jungle and then heads to the cocaine lab where he sets off some explosives so that the guards will hear. When they come running, he starts firing and Valencia sets off for the main building to confront the general. An Apache helicopter arrives. Frank grabs onto it and finds Hoyle and a pilot. He kills the pilot and then he goes after Hoyle. They fight in the cockpit with Hoyle pulling a knife on him, saying that he should have wasted him in a Nam. Frank lets Hoyle appear to get the better of him, then slits Hoyle's wrist with his diamond-tipped manicure. Like I said, ladies on Long Island, don't play. Before throwing him out of the chopper. Frank then fires at the compound, destroying some of the aircraft buildings and then the Lear jet as it takes off. He then has to bail out after he spots a surface-to-air missile. He finds his ammo stash, makes his way to the compound, and sees that the General has Valencia at gunpoint. Before Frank can act, the General shoots Valencia in the head and kills him. Frank then starts firing everything he has and killing everyone around him. He wastes all of the guards and yells, GENERAL TRACK! The general comes up behind him with a gun and tells him to drop his weapons. He calls him the Punisher. Frank says, You know me. I heard the stories, the general says, but not until you put on your war paint did I believe them. So you are the Punisher. In Vietnam, I recall, you used to put on war paint before going on a mission. Remember when I shot that ARVN in the yard at Loc Nall? You wanted to kill me then. I could see it in your eyes. The narration box then says... He's standing too close. I begin to smile. The general says, Goodbye, Punisher, and jams the pistol into Frank's back. Frank turns around, smacks the general's hand away, grabs the gun out of his hand, and then, as he says, sets the history book straight. Frank then watches the compound explode, and the narration boxes say, Silly to build a house in the jungle. Never last. Found two million dollars in the safe. How am I going to get it back to the States? It's my problem. Pleasant problem for a change. We end six days later at the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. Frank narrates, I come here to read the names. Every now and then I see a name I recognize. Sometimes the wall makes mistakes. Sometimes I make corrections. Sometimes I make additions. He points at Curtis Hoyle's name on the wall, takes out a picture of himself, Ayers and Hoyle from Vietnam, and rips it up. So long, Ayers. You were a good man. Thought you'd made it out. Years later, the war reared up and stung you. Sick of the war. I quit. And Frank walks away. Oh, man! So when I was a kid, my friend Tom Hackett, who was the person who introduced me to the Punisher comic in the first place, and I mentioned him back the last time when I... Covered issue number one. He not only told me to pick up issue one, but then he talked about how issue two was even better than issue one because it had more action in it. And I took his advice. I bought issue two, and I'm sorry to say that I don't remember where I bought it or when I bought it. I might have bought it when it came out. But I do know that I bought it off the rack. I do know that I didn't get it from Back Issue Bin, so it wasn't within a month or so of it coming out. But anyway, he wasn't kidding. Yes, I realized that what Mike Barron did was basically drop Frank Castle into the middle of the last like 30 minutes 20 minutes of commando and uh, granted there's no kidnapped daughter but there is certainly the punisher is a one-man army taking out everything and everyone in this path so it's definitely of its time it's definitely a 1980s testosterone pounding action story but it's so freaking good baron knows what his audience wants from this character and he knows how to give it in a way that's actually substantial and isn't just explosions and actions and I think Klaus Jansen's artwork really helps significantly with this. As I said from the last issue I covered on the show, this was around the time that Jansen was fresh off working with Frank Miller on Dark Knight. And I'm usually pretty cold on Klaus Jansen. Some of his Batman stuff from around this time leaves something to be desired. But the last issue in this issue works so well. By doing penciling, inking, and the coloring, Jansen gives this book a tone that fits the story that Baron has written. Plus, Jansen uses the nine-panel grid ex- expertly. Page six is the scene where Frank shoots the General's goon, and the top panel, which goes across the entire page, but only takes up about a quarter of the page, shows him standing up straight and firing, Valencia ducking his head, and the goon being shot, and the entire background is just BAM! And it's damn effective. In fact, there's not a single splash page in this entire comic. The title page has three panels, including a huge one that is shot looking down at the compound from the back of the learjet that is really, really nice and dramatic. And the last couple of pages usually maybe five, six panels, but Jansen really knows how to lay out a book here. It's it's great, great stuff. Plus, I love the connection to Frank's time in Vietnam. This is something I actually have a lot of experience with because I've already covered two of the three Punisher Invade the NAM stories over on one of my other podcasts in country. I had considered covering the storyline as an extra on that show, but once I conceived this podcast miniseries and realized that I was covering it here, I just decided not to do it over there and save it for here. But that being said, if you get the chance, read these two issues of The Punisher. I know they're not as much of a character study as, say, the Garth Ennis run on the book, but Mike Barron and Klaus Janssen really turn in an entertaining piece of action, in fact, you can probably read this while listening to the score from like Commando or Predator and you have the full 80s action experience. Now, next episode I'm actually going to have 3 comics for you, but before I get to that I have one more thing. Since I have a physical copy of the Punisher number 2 and I'm not in other words I'm not reading this digitally or from a trade paperback, that means that I can take a look at ads there's no letter column i would take a look at the letter column but it's only the second issue so they have a little profile on mike baron klaus jansen and carl potts um our first ad on the inside cover is uh m&m anamorphic m&m's doing gymnastics with packs of fun for everyone uh we have a rainbow bubble gum and super bubble bubble gum kite offer you can pay four ninety five for a kite that you can that'll probably like you'll fly once uh there's two ads on one page and on the bottom is the Westfield comics catalog uh the Westfield company and a really cool looking house that's that's always in their advertisements and then on the top of this ad page you have time machine um a book series This is Wanted, kids brave and resourceful enough to become time travelers. Your mission to be sent back across time and space into these action-packed books, chase spies through the streets of turn of the century London, battle with the gladiators in Julius Caesar's Rome. It's all up to you. Your choice is determine the outcome. Will you accomplish your mission and return to the present, or will you be trapped in the distant past? Get ready for the adventure of your life. And they're advertising books 17 uh, and... 18, which are The Scotland Yard Detective and The Sword of Caesar. And I believe it sounds like it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure type, uh, type of novel. We have uh, a full-page ad for Robotech, the role-playing game, uh, which has two Veritechs in battle mode uh, getting ready to fire. And uh, this is about... Um, it explains what a ro- role-playing game is, and it tells you what's in the... Uh, in the, in the book for the role-playing game, you've got the details in the Veritech Mecca, the SDF1s, and Trotty characters. Lavishly illustrated 85 by 11 trade paperback book for $9.95 from Palladium Books. There's a New England comic ad, uh, the highlights of which are a Wolverine drawing at the bottom left-hand corner that I, kind of looks like Jim Lee, but this is too early for Jim Lee, so I'm going to say it's actually Art Adams probably art Adams, and uh in the upper right hand corner is a little box that says gi joe is action force hot new series about gi joe in england where they operate as action force snake Eyes, cobra and the rest not on newsstands action force one two three each a dollar fifty and i remember i think it was just because they wanted to get as much money out of gi joe fans as they could marvel did start reprinting this action force series in like magazine format I don't remember how long it lasted, though, but I remember my friend having a couple of issues. East Coast Comics has a full-page ad, uh, and if you're familiar with comics from the 80s and 90s, you know it's just a huge ad with just the listings of comics you're likely to look at and buy and their prices, kind of like the Mile High ads were, except this was white and the Mile High ads are yellow. We have the Marvel Super Mart. If you are in canada go to gray legion on 2226 queen street west in toronto there is a hodgepodge ad with your typical thin ad for the new york comic convention uh your typical buy all this prank stuff like itching powder insult books and disappearing ink self-defense x-ray specs thousands of comics for sale from uh some guy in wisconsin and then there's a giant overstock sale at Sulipa's Comic World in Winnipeg, and it's got this um, ad, but the type is so small, it's really, really hard to read. So get out your magnifying glass. Bullpen Bulletins. The profile is on Jim Shooter, and the picture of him is just of a guy in his torso. In other words, he's so tall, he doesn't fit into the frame. Ha ha ha. And uh, there's various items. No stand Soapbox. Um, John Romita Jr. had a... Uh, one of the Ramitas had a kid, and oh, John—it wasn't John Junior had a kid; it was his his uh, his sibling. But John Senior is a grandpa. Somebody got some awards, you know, the typical typical stuff. And then the last two, last couple of ads are a Marvel subscription ad saying "Cheaper by the Dozen" with um, Spidey, Wolverine, Doctor Strange, the Wasp, She Hulk. Mr. Fantastic Cap and the Hulk in the in a big lunch sack, kind of like the cover of the video of the video tape uh, for sack lunch, which if you're a Seinfeld fan, you know what I'm talking about. There's an ad on the back inside cover for house two, the second story, which I don't know it was any good or not. And on the back is your mainstay of comics ads from the 1980s. Dungeons and Dragons. And that'll Do it! Uh, Come back on June 9th when I'll be looking at three comics. First, I'll continue on our current G.I. Joe storyline with issue number 63 of that series. And then I'll take a look at the wedding of the year and the biggest comic book wedding of the 1980s. That's right, everyone. Spider-Man and Mary Jane are getting married. And I will be covering it by looking at the Amazing Spider-Man annual number 21 as well as Marvel Age number 54. Until then, uh, don't forget to leave feedback on the Facebook page. You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Check out popcultureaffidavit.com for the show notes. And as always, thanks for listening and take care.